This podcast is brought to you by jewishpodcasts.org. Start your very own podcast today at jewishpodcasts.org. All right, everyone. Parshish Pekude. I'm skipping by Yaakov this year. Parshish Pekude, 5781. The Pasuk we're dealing with is an interesting one. Parak Lamed Ches Pasuk Chof Ches. Okay, 3820. The 1,775 shkalim of silver that were not counted with the others, he made them as hooks for the pillars. He covered up their, their tops of them with gold. He made them nice. It says he belted them, put something around them. Now, what, what does this mean? There were 603,550 Jews. 603,550 Jews. All of them gave between the ages of 20 and 60. Each one of them gave a chazi shekel. They gave a half shekel to the base of Mikdash, to the Mishkan itself. That half shekel, obviously, if you add it up all together, it's going to end up being 301,775. 301,775. Well, that's the amount of silver they should have given shkalim altogether. 300,000 of it, we know exactly where it went to. It went to the Adonim, the sockets, the sockets that were there to hold up the beams in the Mishkan itself. But there's an extra 1,775 pieces of silver that they weren't sure exactly what happened to. So listen to what happened to it. The Chazal say that this Pasuk says that Moshe Rabbeinu forgot what he did with them. That he looked at his stuff, he saw that he had 1,775 shkalim of silver left, and he forgot it. And then it says, Oh, and those, he remembered it in the end. He's like, oh, right, I forgot what I did with that. And he told Claudius, so I used them as vavim la'amudim, the hooks that go on the outside that hold the little sheets that were on the outside of the mishkan that made it look nice. That's what I did with it. The Miyam says, you know how we know that from the Pasuk? From the haze, ha'eleth. Shvahameos, the extra haze that are written over here, sounds like it's something that they knew about before and that they had asked about before. What did you do with the extra 1,775 shkalim of silver? And Moshe Venus says, wait, wait, wait. Oh, I know what I did with it. And he said exactly what he did with it. That's how it indicates, says Miamloes. The cold David says the remez is in the trup. Does anybody know the trup by the Esau Eleth in the beginning of the Pasuk? Vesa Eleth? It's an Azla Geresh. Super weird trup. Asla Gerish. It's almost like when you read it, it's like, oh, I got it. It was like an Einfall. Like all of a sudden he realized, oh my gosh, I know what I did with it. I realized what I did with it. And therefore he told him this is what it was used for. Is if he's saying, I just remembered what it was used for. Now the Medrash Tanhuma tells us in Simon Zayn what, ha- what happened. What's the following? Moshe Avinu told them, listen, I have a cheshben for all of the silver. Okay? And he told them this is what he used silver for. He's mentioned the sockets, etc. But then he completely forgot about it and was embarrassed. This is how the Medrash puts it. He was embarrassed until a Baskol came out and a Baskol came out and said, you used it for the Vavim Lamudim. And he said, oh right, I used it for the Vavim Lamudim. That this Pasuk is after the Baskol spoke to him. It wasn't Moshe Rabbeinu remembering it, but rather after the Baskol said it to him. The Rabbeinu Bechaya, the Zohar and Chelek Bey's Simon Reish Chavav, as well as the Kliyakar, they all say the exact same thing, that he remembered it after the Baskol told it to him. All this happened because he wanted to make a cheshben on his own so that nobody would think that he had stolen anything or taken everything from them. That was the idea behind it. But the Tzrora Mor says it was not a baskel. Hashem opened up his eyes. All of a sudden he realized, oh, right, that's what I did with it. And a Baruch who allowed him to remember what it was. 
And therefore, he told the people immediately. The Medrash Tankuma has a version like that as well, right? But it's either the Basko or he remembered himself. Yalkut Temani. Yalkut Temani. This is a, a Medrash that's brought down only by, you see this in the Torah Shlema, Rimenachem Kasher Sefer. He says that the Vav, the Vav in this Pasik, the Esa Elif, the Vav came around and peered right in front of Moshe Rabbeinu. And Moshe Rabbeinu remembered, like, oh, the Vav in the hooks. Vav, which obviously is the letter Vav, also stands for the Vav in Lamudim, the hooks that were on the pillars right around there. He said, oh, that's what it was used for. He was shocked, but he remembered what it was for. That's how he remembered, and he realized that he had used everything extra right over there. And finally, the Chassam Sofer. How did he remember it? He quotes a drusha, Yalkut Ruveni, number eight, who in turn quotes the Megalia Mukos. Says, Rabbi Akiva came to Moshe Rabbeinu in a dream. You hear this? Rabbi Akiva appeared to Moshe Rabbeinu in a dream. Yes, I know, Rabbi Akiva lived 2,000 years after Moshe Rabbeinu. He appeared to him in a dream and began darshaning the vavs of the Torah. That was one of the things Rabbi Akiva did. He darshaned all the essen in the Torah. He darshaned the tagin, the crowns of the Torah. He darshaned the vavs of the Torah. He started darshaning the vavs of the Torah. And Moshe Rabbeinu realized that the extra silver that he had forgotten about were the vavin la'amudim, the hooks for the pillars, based on what Rabbi Akiva says. And that's why he says, Ksam Sofer says, it's Azwa Gerish. It's almost like different. It's a mafsik. It stopped him because he said, wait, 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 wait. That's why. Because he went to sleep. He woke up. He recognized what he did with it. And that's what happened. That's the reason. Why Rabbi Akiva? Why Rabbi Akiva over anybody else? Why would he be the person to remind him? Because, Rebbe, simply put, Rebbe Akiva darshan all the vav and the essen of the Torah. But clearly there's something different. Rebbe Akiva came from a family of Gerim. And not just Stam, a family of Gerim. You realize where Rebbe Akiva came from, right? Does anybody know? Does anybody remember the Gemara in Gittin and Nun Ches? It's a Gemara that says Rebbe Akiva came from the family of Sisra. And for those who haven't gone to seminary this past year, Sisra was the general who fought against Devorah Hanaviah. Sisra was that general. Rabbi Akiva was a descendant from him. He wasn't a Ger. He was either the son of a Ger or a grandson of a Ger. I don't know because he's Akiva ben Yosef and some, some Midrashim have it, Akiva ben Yosef ben Shimon, that his grandfather was a Ger or his father was a Ger. But either way, he came from there. So he was Darshanik. He was from a family of Gerim. He joined Klau Yisrael and therefore he's like the Vav, the An, for Klau Yisrael, and that's why he darshaned the Vavin. But there's so much more to this. So much more to this. If you have your sheets open, you can go to page number two. I'm going to skip Revolution for right now. How could he have forgotten what he did with the extra silver? The Kutzka says, there's no way Moshe Rabbeinu forgets anything. Moshe Rabbeinu doesn't forget anything. You know what happened? The people that gave that extra 1,775 shkalim, the 3,550 people that gave the 1,775 shkalim, you know what happened to them? They brought it shalom l'shem shemayim. Shalom l'shem shemayim. And if you bring something shalom l'shem shemayim, you don't remember what you did with it. Moshe Rabbeinu couldn't remember. That's the reason why he was metakin them, the people that didn't donate it, L'shem Shemayim, by connecting them to tzaddikim, says the, the Kachka Rebbe. He gave them over to a tzaddik with the classic Hasidic fashion of taking it and saying, you know what they did with it? He knew that those people weren't able to do it L'shem Shemayim. They didn't do it the right way. So he connected them with people that knew what they were doing. They were vavim, the additions to the amudim, the pillars, those who were doing it right. That there were people who were added on to be able to help him do it in the right way. 
That's the idea, and that's how the Kutzker Rebbe puts it, in a more Pashat fashion. The Tam Das, Rav Sternbuch says, originally, Moshe Rebbe didn't count these hooks as part of the Cheshben. Why? They were outside of the Mishkan. Remember, you have the actual Heichel of the Mishkan, the actual Kodesh and the Kodesh HaKadoshim. That was the area of the Mishkan itself. The outside, there was a Chatzar, that's where the Bigsby's back was, where they brought the animals. Outside of that were these pillars in the ground, right? They were all stood up one around the other, and they put these sheets all around them. How did the sheets stand up? From hooks, the vavim that were on those amudim holding them in place, the vavim were outside of the Mishkan area, totally outside. It would be like right over here. They would be sitting from right here, hooking on all the different things that had to be standing up right over here. It wouldn't be over here because that's where they hung down. It was from right here from the outside. So Moshe Rabbeinu purposely forgot them, so to speak. He didn't even know they were there. It's not part of the Mishkan. It's outside of the Mishkan. Says Tambadas, he didn't know that that counts as part of the Mishkan. So yes, he knew that the 1,775 different pieces of silver were used for the Vavim Lamudim, but he thought it doesn't count. He thought that's not part of the Mishkan, and therefore he didn't mention them on purpose. That's how Rishnerbach says it. And a Kaddish Baruch Hu's lesson, even those Vavim Lamudim, even those things that are outside of the Mishkan, still count as the Mishkan. It's as if they are part of the Mishkan. Part of the Mishkan regularly as if it's right there. Rav Schwab in Mayim Beshueva says, you know what the lesson is behind that? A leader can't forget the people that are outside. You're always going to have people that are not doing what everybody else is doing. I'm going to give you an example. In Shir today, the other, all the guys that I had in my Shir, they were all on. They had that sugya down. Like everything was done. And we'd done it enough that I was expecting them to really know it well. Because the truth is, they did. They knew it well. They had learned it well yesterday. I knew that they knew it, and I had them reading. One guy didn't know what he was doing. One guy was totally off. It was a bad day or whatever it was. Maybe he wasn't paying attention as much as he could yesterday, but I saw he wasn't doing it. Every time I called on him, he wasn't getting something right. So what do you do in that case? So there's two ways that any Rebbe or teacher can go in that direction. Either you can continue to call on him and make fun of him and make sure that he's outside the camp, and that he's completely out, that he realized how bad he was, so that tomorrow he'll pay attention more. Of course a person could do that. But the other way of doing it is build him up by speaking to him and giving him the answer. Like just saying, like, this Gemara ends up saying like this, isn't that right? Let's say, like Ruvain, doesn't that make sense? Doesn't that make sense? And when Ruvain says, yeah, because he doesn't really know what he's talking about, but he's just saying, like, yeah, that makes sense, then instead of being the mean teacher that's like, no, that's wrong. <laughs> instead, you say, like, you bring them up again. You just say, like, wait, it, I, I think it goes like that. Isn't that right? And you keep going. Th- those people that are outside, says Mayim Beshueva, your first impression is they're outside. They don't belong here anyway. They're the Nechashalim Acharecha, the ones who are weaker, who don't really belong here in the first place. They shouldn't have been here. They might as well stay outside, because what's the point? Why should they be around if they really don't want to be here in the first place, says Mayan Beis Shueva, HaKadosh Baruch who lit up Moshe Rabbeinu's eyes and said, no, 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 even those Vavim, even though they seem like they're outside, they're trying to get in. They're sitting out there holding on to the curtain, allowing the curtain to be a part of this entire Mishkan. Without them, the curtains wouldn't stand. They Chof Hey Kislev. Everybody knows that, right? It was on Hanukkah. But when was it set up? 
It was set up for the first time on? It's a machlokis in the Medrash, but it's either Rosh Chodesh, Nisan, or the 8th of Nisan, but either way, Rosh Chodesh Nisan is the likely, that's the likely opinion. It was not set up for almost two and a half months after it was finished, right? Two months after it was finished. That's strange, right? Why would it have waited that long? But it shows you in sort of makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, he knew what he used everything for beforehand, and yet it's been two months and a little bit. It's possible to forget something like that. But Revolson says it's not a coincidence. The time that it was made, Hanukkah, up until the times of Rosh Chodesh Nisan, is the middle of the winter. Yes, it gets dark more often than not earlier in the year. Like around that time, there's more dark than there is light. And it's difficult to remember things when there's darkness, when there's so much of that shlita in the world. Teves is a month that supposedly is given over to the Satan. That's the month, it was during Teves and Shvat and Adur that leads up to Rosh Chodesh Nisan where Kaddish Baruch who gave Moshe the job to do and Moshe Rabbeinu forgot what he had done with it. And it was a natural regression based on those times, of the, those times, those months that were right there, especially in a midbor, which is just a rabbim, a place of tumah. You combine those factors together and you come up with the fact that Moshe Rabbeinu could not remember what he had done with this. He had no idea what it was over there. They didn't have the menorah yet to light up the way throughout the darkness. They didn't have it to be able to get, there, to get through there. And then comes that Chassam Sofer again. The Chassam Sofer takes care of everything. That's going to lead us to another idea that Amunitzi Tech of the Revolution brings down. The root of all B'nai Yisrael is 600,000 Nishamos. Yes, obviously, there are more than 600,000 Jews in Klau Yisrael. But the root behind all of them is 600,000 Nishamos. We know that Moshe Rabbeinu is equal to 600,000 Jews. Because Moshe Rabbeinu is connected to every Jew in Klau Yisrael. There are 600,000 letters in the Torah. And I realize there are really 304,805. There aren't 600,000. How to get from 304,805 to 600,000 is a kasha. That's a great kasha. The Pineoshua spends time on that in Kiddush and on Daf Lamed. There are kashas that are asked throughout. Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky has an unbelievable piece at the end of MS Yaakov in the Torah that goes through how 304,805 can become 600,000. And it's a great kasha. But we know this from the word Yisrael. Yisrael, Yud, Sin, Resh, Aleph, Lamed stands for Yesh, Shishim, Rebo, Osios, Torah. There are 600,000 letters of the Torah. Yesh, Shishim, Rebo, Osios, Torah, Rashi, Tevis, Yisrael. For that reason, they're connected to B'nai Yisrael for that reason. Each one of these neshamos, each one of them, are connected to that letter and has a certain chilek that is theirs alone, that is its own, that's their own thing. There are others whose neshamos are connected to something else. Says the Chassam Sofer, yeah, there are 600,000 souls in Klai Yisrael, but certain people are connected to something that, Dave, we've done this before, to something called Klipas Noga. Klipas Noga. To a part of Tuma that's similar to what we exist in today, the physical world in front of us. They don't have a chilek in Torah. They're not a letter in the Torah, yet they're still Jewish. They're just not part of the 600,000 main forms of the neshama. And although that sounds strange, what do you mean? A person who's Jewish who's not connected to Torah? How is that possible? Says the Chassam Sofer, what they do have is the ability to connect 
to be mahane, to give benefit to Talmidei Chachamim with their money, property, marrying off their daughters to Talmidei Chachamim. And then they receive the reward that they're supposed to get equally to anybody else in Klai Yisrael, even though their Nisham was not there. And in fact, it might even be an easier job. It might be an easier job. They don't have all the requirements that someone who's one of the 600,000 letters and what they have to do in this. It could be something that's a little bit easier. The 1,775 shkalim, who are the 3,550 people who gave half shkalim each, says the Chassam Sofer. This does not mean making something up. They are the souls of those people outside of the 600,000 that join Klai Yisrael who are not connected to a letter in the Torah and their only connection was being above La'amud. A connection from the outside holding everybody in, supporting and connecting to the Amude Olam, which is crazy scary to think about, but an unbelievable idea. If you remember, Rav Schwab is the one that said, don't forget about those people. Don't forget about them. They're important people because they're holding on to the Amudim. They're holding on to the curtains. Without them, the curtains wouldn't exist. And Rabbi Akiva apparently has a connection to them. Rabbi Akiva was the one who darshaned the Vavin. He was the one who reminded Moshe Rabbeinu about what these people were and where they were, where their donations went to. And there's clearly something amazing that's happening here with all this. So he goes through. He says something amazing about Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva is the Aleph Zi'ira of the word Vayikra. You know the word Vayikra in next week's Parsha, Vayikra, the Aleph is small. That Aleph stands for Rabbi Akiva. What that means is Rabbi Akiva doesn't belong in the Torah. Moshe Rabbeinu is Torah Shebech Sav. Moshe Rabbeinu is equal to 600,000 Jews. Moshe Rabbeinu is connected to 600,000 Nishamos and Klai Yisrael. But Rabbi Akiva is the king of Torah Shebaal Peh. Not Torah Shabbat Sab, that's Moshe. That's 600,000, that's 600,000 letters. Moshe Rabbeinu was that. Rabbi Akiva is his counterpart in Torah Shabbat Peh. He was able to reach where Moshe Rabbeinu wasn't able to reach, which explains the Gemara Menachos, Tafchaf Tess, where Moshe Rabbeinu saw a shear of Rabbi Akiva, saw him darshaning the Essen, the Tag, and the Vavin, and said, I don't know what's going on here. Rabbi Akiva was able to reach a level that we can't even imagine that Moshe Rabbeinu himself wasn't able to get to. Whatever that means, he was able to understand things on a different level than Moshe Rabbeinu because he got to the level of Torah Shabbat Peh. There are 600,000 Neshamas in Klai, so there are 12 Shvatim. And then there are the other people who are connected, not in the natural fashion, but through another way. What the Chassam Sofer calls the 3,550 souls that are connected through the Vavim who all are connected to Rebbe Akiva himself. Did you know this? Hold on one second, Dave. There's a Shiloh about certain psukim in the Torah. You all know that, right? Gemara and Baba Basra. Who wrote the last eight psukim in the Torah? The Gemara says Moshe Kosebidema, right? Possibly Yoshua. Who said that? Rebbe Meir and Rebbe Yehuda, who are the Talmidim of Rebbe Akiva. Who wrote them? They were written by Yoshua. Put together by Yeshua. Yes, Moshe Rabbeinu had a shaykhist to them, but it was really part of Yeshua's Torah. You know what the Pshat is? Says Revolson, it's a mess of Chiddush. That's the 3,550 letters. It's not 3,550 letters. I checked it up. But the 3,550 souls that are connected to those letters of the Torah. It's the last Epsukin that Moshe Rabbeinu wasn't shaykh to because he died by Yamas Shamosha. 
He had no shaykhs them. There's even a connection. It's almost like connected to the rest of the Torah, but they're not exactly part of the Torah itself. There were halachos. If anybody remembers the Gemara and Tmur on Daftazayin, when Moshe Rabbeinu died, Yoshua lost halachos. 3,000 halachos, kalvachomers, all these drushes. He forgot all of them. He couldn't remember them. Yoshua couldn't remember them until Osniel ben Kenaz was able to bring them back through Pilpul. This is the pshat. There's the Torah Shabbat Sav. And then Torah Shabbat they needed to bring back themselves to be able to understand it and bring ideas behind it. That's not part of Moshe Rabbeinu's neshama, so to speak. That's part and connected to Rebbe Akiva. Cain had an os that was put on his forehead, a sign. We know that either he had horns, antlers, etc. The Zohar says that Cain had a letter, an os on his forehead. It was a vav. He had a vav. From there, that's how you know you've ever heard that your sins are right there on your forehead. That people who know how to read are able to look at your forehead and be like, oh my gosh, what did you just do? That's what they're saying? They're able to do that? Cain had that os, a vav, right there in the middle of his forehead. Cain had the letter that shows that he was connected, but not exactly there. He was connected, he was trying to get in, but he wasn't there. Cain is the source of the neshamos of Ra throughout the world. That letter, therefore, is a connection to something that's there as well. That is why they were represented by the Vav and Lamudim, which hung outside of the Mishkan, the way the Chassam Sofer put it. Moshe Rabbeinu had no shaykhs them, so he didn't remember them. Is that crazy? He didn't remember. He had no shaykhs to it. And that's the hint behind what the Gemara is saying. Look at the trap. Remember what I told you it was? The Esa Eleph? Azla Geresh. Azla Geresh. They went and were kicked out of the camp. They were taken away from everybody else. They were the sons of the Gerim, the Erev Rav, whoever it was that joined Klai Yisrael, who were never fully connected to Bnei Yisrael, but they joined Klai Yisrael, became a part of Klai Yisrael. Their children's souls could be part, the same thing as the rest of Klai Yisrael. Those are the people who made it in. The lesson behind all this, if you include the Rav Schwab that we said before, is so poshit. No matter how far you've gone, even if you think you've completely disconnected yourself from Moshe Rabbeinu, you don't believe the Torah was given to Harsina, you don't believe that there's a connection at all, you don't believe that there's something real between what you're doing and what God is giving us, that the Torah in front of you looks like nothing but another book in front of you. You're still connected to Rabbi Akiva, who allows himself to be there for every part of Klal Yisrael that otherwise is not counted. Anybody else that's there, there is always going to be a Rebbe Kiva to have your back. There's always going to be someone like him. The 12 Shvatim, and in the future, there will be that 13th Shevet. That 13th Shevet that takes in everybody. That used to be Shevet Dun, who took everybody, the Nechasholim Acharecha, and now it's someone different. Now it's someone who's able to connect to everyone and everything at that time, and that's what Rebbe Akiva stands for. What an unbelievable idea, isn't it? It's a crazy idea. It really encompasses this entire idea of why specifically 1775. But either way, that's something that seems to be absolutely amazing within the Parsha. Now, to go back, we're on page two, guys. Miam Luiz, he goes on to say that B'nai Yisrael saw that every bit of their donations were accounted for from that point on. They had no questions. At first, they were kind of questionable. They looked over at HaKadosh Baruch Hu and they looked over at Moshe Rabbeinu and said, how do we know? that our donations were used wisely. How do I know that it went for the right thing? I just don't know. How do I know? Show me that it went in the right way. And that's what they kept asking. 
Moshe Rabbeinu from this point on didn't have to answer any of their questions. First, first of all, you don't have to answer them in the first place. We don't ask the gizbar of the base makers what the money went to. We have to trust them. It's the same way a treasurer of the shoal. We have to trust them. There's so much money coming in. We have to put our trust in somebody, so we do it. Yes, we have a halacha that you should always have two people in charge for that reason. So there's no shilas that there are adim against you. They can tell what happened or whatever it is. But we don't question these types of things. Moshe Rabbeinu showed, don't ask me any questions. I can tell you exactly what I did with absolutely everything. And therefore, he told them the silver. He told them the copper. And when he was getting to the gold and about to say it, the mishkan, everybody there is just called out and said, no, 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 just stop. Just stop. We trust you now. We know what you did with the silver. We know what you did with the, cop- with, the, with the copper. We don't even need to ask you about the gold. We trust you completely. As a side note, by the way, the gold would have been really, really hard. The gold would have been extremely difficult. It was the one thing that they refined it down to its barest minimum, what we would call 24 karat gold, so that it's so malleable and pliable, it's almost like able to be moved and moved around 24 karat gold. You know, like they take gold pieces and to see if it's real, they bite on it. It's because fool's gold is hard. Pyrite is very hard. While regular gold is usually able to be bitten into. You can see your tooth marks in. If it's real gold, you can see your tooth marks in it. It's not a great symbol because there is pyrite that's soft and there is gold that's hard. But if it's not, it doesn't have the impurities out. Nonetheless, the gold was used so much. The, the kaporis itself on top of the Aron Kodesh was a crazy amount of gold. The Aron Kodesh was huge. The menorah, how much gold went into the menorah. It was a huge block of gold that they chiseled out or threw into the fire and refined it down. There's an amazing thing that happened over there. But from then on, they didn't, they, they stopped. They said, we're not going to ask any questions. And based on that, Rabbi Yitzhak brings a story in Tuvchi Abiyu. It doesn't have so much like this, but it's a cute story about being a trustworthy person as well as making a Kiddush Hashem and being a gizbar that everyone can trust. There was a very wealthy Jew. His name was Mr. Payato. Payato, I think I'm pronouncing it correctly. P-A-J-A-T-O. I, I, I'm actually translating that from Hebrew. So, you know, it's like, I, I don't know. He lived in Syria many years ago. The Sultan trusted him. And he was known to be a very wealthy Jew among everybody. He was well-known, well-liked by Jews, non-Jews alike. And people used to come to him all the time for, for advice. And he was extremely wealthy. Arabs used to come to him to borrow money with interest from him. Obviously, we'd never lend a Jew with interest. That would be ribbis. But he would lend non-Jews with, with interest, like we're allowed to from the Torah. And there were Arabs that used to come. One day, a wealthy Arab came to his door and asked to borrow a huge sum of money. Mr. Payatu was not happy. This guy was known as being a person who never paid things back. He never, ever gave things back. And it was a terrible reputation. So he, wanted, he tried to give him every excuse in the book, right, not to whatever it is. I, 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 he knew that this guy was never going to pay him back. Nonetheless, it's going to be dangerous to deny someone this powerful a loan. Because if he says no, then he could get him in trouble. He could lose everything. So it's going to come at a loss. So he's worried about what to do. So he said, he found, he gave, gave an idea. He said, look, I'll lend you the money, but I need somebody to co-sign on this loan. And that was legal. Whenever you have a big loan, a big sum of money, you need to have a co-signer. We have that in any loan. Any loan society that you have, you're going to have to have somebody co-sign on your loan. So the guy said, what, you don't trust me? The Arab man said to Mr. Payato, you don't trust me? My reputation is not good enough that I'm a very wealthy man, that I have much more money than I'm borrowing from you right now. I just don't have it in liquidated assets. But I could pay you back right now if I wanted to. I could take the money on my thing. I just don't want to sell anything. You don't trust me? And the guy said, no, no, no. This cosign thing is a totally legal thing. This is what we do, right? So I'm going to need you to have a cosigner. Is that okay? 
So the Arab merchant realized, the, Arab, the wealthy Arab knew there was no way he was going to find a cosigner. He didn't have a good reputation. He knew that about himself. He said, look, you have a trustworthy God. He said to Mr. Payato, you have a trustworthy God, you're Hashem. He'll be my cosigner. So Mr. Payato realized, like, that's a joke. But he realized he could also make a Kiddush Hashem. He said, you know what? I'll do it. I'll do it. So I'll take HaKadosh Baruch, who is a cosigner. So he wrote everything down in a binding legal document. And then afterward, he took out 200 lira, which is a large amount. I don't know what it was. And he gave it to him. He put it in the, the, the wealthy Arab's red bag. He took it in his red bag, put it in his red bag and put it inside it. He went over to his property, right? And he saw in his fields there were some things going on. He decided, you know, he wasn't going home yet. He was going to go work with the workers in the field. But he didn't want to have his bag of money on him. So he had a cabbage, like a cabbage patch all around, right? And he decided, you know what? I'll take the bag of money. I'll hide it in this cabbage right here. When I come back, I'll go grab it. He felt that that was the safest place. Nobody's going to be by the cabbage. So he put the red bag right down by the cabbage. And then he went to go work. He went, did this, then did that. Then they called him in for dinner. He went in for dinner. He drank a little bit. He ended up talking with somebody. He fell asleep. The next morning, he wakes up and he said, what happened to my bag? What did I do with the 200 lira? He couldn't remember, and he's thinking and thinking and thinking, and then all of a sudden he says to himself, oh my gosh, I left it, I put it on a piece of cabbage. He went out to the fields, but he had thousands of cabbages out there, thousands. And the thing about cabbage is, I didn't know this, cabbage at night, it's open during the day to take in the sun's rays, but at night it closes up, closes up completely. So it took the bag with it. It took the bag and it got swallowed up into the middle of the cabbage, and it was swallowed up completely. So he's like tearing open cabbages, looking for his way, but he can't find any. When he realized he's going to ruin all of his cabbage, he's got to make money. This is his field. He's like, I can't do it. So he just gave up. He said, forget it. The workers, meanwhile, cut down all those cabbages that they were supposed to cut down that day. They brought it into the marketplace. And Mr. Pujuto had his servants going out to the marketplace, buying cabbage that day. So they went out to the marketplace and they saw the different cabbages out there. So they took one, they felt it and it was a little heavy. Said, this seems like a really good cabbage. He bought that one, the servant bought that one, brought it back to the house, opened it up and lo and behold, the red bag was inside there. He goes up to his master and he says, Mr. Pujuto, look what I found. He came in, he saw that it was the red bag, the same red bag that he had given the guy the day before. The day before, he got it back that day. But he couldn't believe it. He absolutely couldn't believe it. He said nothing. He didn't want to say anything. He didn't want to go back. That's that. 30 days later, however long it was, I don't know, two months, three months later, the guy came back and said to Ms. Butu, listen, I want to extend the loan. Ms. Butu said, oh, big surprise. And he said, I'll tell you why. I have no idea what happened to the money. I lost the money on the first day. It was stolen from me, right? And I have absolutely no idea what to do because I, I never got the money. That's why I want the extension on the loan. So Mr. Puto pulled out the red bag, put it on the table. He said, where'd you get that? He told him the story. He said, the cabbage that we bought must have been something you must have put down inside there. The guy said, the guy looked at Mr. Puto, at Mr. Puto and said, clearly, I, I, I want to tell you, I was not planning on paying you back. I was planning on pushing it off and pushing it off and pushing it off, right? And your God, the co-signer, must have decided that it was better for me to pay it back immediately. 
So take it, and that's that. I have no idea if you borrowed more money. See, the problem with these stories is you have no idea what happens in the end. Like, did the guy borrow more money after that? Did he take more money? Did he then become a Jew lover for the rest of his life? Or did he always have it against them? I have absolutely no idea. I don't know what the end of the story is. But that idea of trying to be the most trustworthy person that you can, as well as trusting in a Kaddish Baruch Hu, a Kaddish Baruch Hu gives you what you need the same way Moshe Rabbeinu got what he needed for this. So Rabbi Kaplan measures the amount over here of 1,775 shkalim of silver to be... 88.75 pounds of silver. 88.75. As of February 2021, it is $291.66 per pound, which means this amount of silver used for the hooks, just the hooks, cost $25,884.83 in today's money. I have no idea what that was back then, but silver has been going it's pretty stable recently, right? But around that amount, that's the way it was. David Ezra goes through and says, this silver was only from the donations of the Mishkan. He goes on a bunch of things. The Orachayim Akadur says, we don't know how much hook, how much silver was put in every hook. It could be that every hook was a different amount, although it seems clear. Ravari Kaplan says it seems there were 60 poles. Each one had the same amount. It would be a pound and a half for every single silver hook. I have absolutely no idea. This is something that seems to me a machlokas and what it was used for and how the hooks were that way, I, I don't know myself. I have absolutely no idea. The Orachayim Akadur says it Probably they had other people donating aside from the silver as well. I, I don't know. But I'll tell you there's a crazy hint here and something that's a little bit nutty that's said by the Rabbeinu Bechaya. It says, when Bnei Yisrael sinned with the Egel Azov, they were pogame the Vav and the Hey of HaKadosh Baruch Hu's name. Obviously, we all know, guys, that HaKadosh Baruch Hu's name is Yud, Hey, and then Vav and Hey. They were pogame the middle Hey and the middle vav of a Kaddish Baruch Hu's name. Not the outer yod and the outer hay, but the middle vav and the middle hay of a Kaddish Baruch Hu's name, which he calls the Aish and the Kol. And that's not for us to figure out. I don't know what that means, but the Aish and the Kol. They brought a half shekel, each one of them, to be used to stand up the Mishkan and to use to hold in place as a kapara for the hay. The Adonim were mechapar for the hay. I'm assuming it's because a hay somewhat looks like an entire, like an, uh, the actual sockets. I'm assuming that's what it means, that each one of them, the sockets, look like a little hay. I know a hay is like that and then like that, so it's missing a little bit right there. But I guess maybe the sockets also had a little hole in them for the adonim to be able to sit, uh, for the, I'm sorry, the beams, the crushim to fit inside. Maybe that's what it's referring to, and I have absolutely no idea. I'm thinking that maybe that's it. The vavin, la'amudin, was machaper for the vav. Does that make sense? You have the hay being taken care of and you have the vav being taken care of. And therefore the Rabbeinu Bechayah says the hint is the S ha'elef, the vav of the S and ha'elef, the hay, vav, S, hay, elef. That was used to be able to be mechaper for all of them and therefore they used those two things to be able to mechaper, the adonim and the vavim, the sockets and the hooks to be able to go through. There's a Tfaris Yonis and Rabbi Yonis and Ibshitz over here. He refers to something earlier I tried searching for it. If anybody knows what this Rabbi Yonis and Ibshitz is, I'd love to see it, but I couldn't find it. Then comes the Rabbi Noah He says this puzzle hints to the power of Torah. Esa Elef is the alufa shal Torah, the learners of Torah, that it was given to us after a thousand generations, 974 generations before the world was created, whatever that means, 
26 generations to go from Adam to Moshe Rabbeinu. A thousand generations when we received the Torah. Shevameos is the 700 halachos that we already discussed that were forgotten in the times of Moshe Rabbeinu's death that were brought back by Asniel ben Kenaz, showing that Torah Shebeksav and Torah Shebaalpeh were connected with one another. Shivim stands for the 70 facets to learning Torah. You've heard Shivim Panim Latorah. You've heard that idea of parties of Pshat Remez Drush. So that's the 70 that it refers to over here. The Amudim stand for the pillars of the world, what we call the learning Torah. That we say what, what holds up the world itself. It's our chesed, our tefillah, our avoda, as well as our Torah. That's the idea behind it. But later, he says 1775 refers to the times of Mashiach. Interesting, right? 1775 refers to the words Mashiach, line of Mashiach. He doesn't explain whatsoever what he means. He goes on about the number 1335, doesn't explain himself where the extra 40 went to, and stays with that. But I found another Chassam Sofer. This Chassam Sofer is in Drushos, and listen to what he says. The Zohar says in Parshas Noach that Mashiach will not come before the year 5500. We do not know the details of what and when that will happen afterward, and the calculation is closed off after that. But says the Zohar, it will come after the year 5500. Now, when is 5500? Well, we can figure out. We're in the year 5781, right? If you go back 281 years from the year 2021, does anybody want to do it? 280 years. So you can do it. I believe in you. 280, it's almost 300. 1740. There's a lot of crazy things about the year 1740. It happens to be a huge year for Hasidim, for Hasidus, what happened during those years. And it's around the times of the Industrial Revolution, which is interesting because that's literally when the world began to change completely from the way it used to be to become the world that we know today, which would be unrecognizable by anybody who lived even 100 years ago, let alone in the 1600s and the 1500s, etc. He then suggests that the word Adun, which is the Adonim, the sockets, Adun is 55. Aleph Dalid Nun is 55. There were 100 Adonim. 100 times 55 is 5,500 for when Mashiach would come. That Moshe Rabbeinu knew. That Moshe Rabbeinu could tell us, Mashiach isn't coming until the 100 Adonim are up after the year 5,500. What he couldn't tell us And what he forgot, conveniently of course, is the 1,775 pieces of silver which refer to the years that Mashiach will be here after that time of 5,500. It clearly is not referring to years because that would be 6,775. And the Gemara tells us that Mashiach is going to come before the year 6,000. But somehow that 1,775, the Vavim Lamudim, is the concept, he says, of how we're going to bring Mashiach after the year 5500. It's been 281 years since then. We've gone through Rabbi Akiva Eger and the Balatanya, gone through the Baal Shem Tov, the Chassam Sofer. We've gone through, I, you can think, Chavetz Chaim, Rechaim Ozer Grudensky, been through the Chazanish, Ramosha Feinstein, Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky, and even Ravel Yashiv, Ravavadi Yosef. It's been those 281 years where we're waiting for it to come and it still hasn't been here yet. And it's hinted in these 
Parshios. And this Parsha, somehow, some way, that 1,775 refers to when Mashiach is going to come back. How and when and where it goes, and is it connected to what we said by Rabbi Akiva with, the, with what we said before, Rabbi Akiva being Torah Shabal Peh, that we just don't have, we're not privy to that information. Unfortunately, we're missing. We're missing something. But that's what we're hoping for. This is what we hope for at the end of days. We hope that this is something that we're going to see so soon in our time that we'll get to see the Vavim La'amudim in our own time, in our own way, and the 1775 will be explained to us when Mashiach comes. Shkayach, everybody. We'll stop right here.